All right, so welcome to today's session on wise effort, wise energy, the fifth step of the path. And um, I'm teaching today with Eileen Messina, and some of you know her because I think some of her mentees are here. Um, But she uh, is originally from the Insight Meditation Center Sangha, but is currently living at Insight Retreat Center in Scotts Valley. So she lives at IRC, and since she's living here, it made sense to join this program. So we're happy to have her. I've known her for a number of years, and she's a chaplain, and a strong, many-retreat Dharma practitioner. Do you want to add anything? No, that sounds good. (laughs) Okay. Of course, you'll be hearing from both of us today. So... Why don't we begin with a sitting to help us settle in. So we'll do some meditation together. So allowing yourself to find a posture that's upright and also relaxed. One where you have a balanced sense of energy. So you're bringing energy through the uplifted spine but it's not an over-efforting. It's not a tightness, a rigidness. You've got that ease also. So allowing your body to find that. Sometimes it helps to even kind of rock back and forth a little bit and just make sure you're really balanced on the chair or the cushion. Allowing your mind to tune in to the fact that your body is now relatively still. You're sitting. And that stillness can help to begin to calm the mind from whatever activity it was doing to get here. Feeling the ease of having arrived and now not needing to do anything, to be anything. Able to just sit. And bringing some deliberate ease to certain parts of the body, so softening the muscles of the face, widening the space between the eyes, allowing the mouth to release and the forehead and the jaw to soften, relaxing the eyes and the eye sockets. Even inside the head and the brain, easing off on any tension inside the head associated with thinking. Allowing the shoulders to be soft. Shoulder blades to slide down the back.
rounding out the belly, allowing it to be soft and open from the inside. Loosening the stomach muscles. through the legs. And then feeling the again the uprightness of the spine. Allowing the energy to distribute itself through the body more evenly. Gently turning the mind toward staying present. And often we use the sensations of the breath as an object for the mind. And there is some degree of intention in aiming to stay present, since often we allow the mind to wander around and do other things. So there's some effort there, but it's a very gentle, easeful effort so that we're not clamping down, we're not forcing. So exploring a little bit that balance, how much effort is needed to stay present at this moment. And at this moment, Checking in again with the mind. Is it slowly settling down a bit? 
Do we need any more effort? Do we need any less effort? Checking in also with the body. Has any tension crept into the jaw, the shoulders, the legs, the back? And can that be eased? Or has the uprightness of the spine begun to sag and a little more energy? would feel more balanced.
at a more subtle level, effort is about how we're paying attention. It's possible to be attentive, but to be a little bit harsh, like pulling the mind to attention. Or it's possible to be a little bit slack. Uh, whatever. Can we find a balance in the level of intentness in the mind? Intent on our meditation. Too much is a little tight. Too little is a little loose. What would it be like to have something like effortless effort or ease within effort? Usually, for our minds, backing off is the direction. Allowing. It's a little challenging to focus, to look so carefully at effort. Um, tends to just tie the mind up sometimes. But it's helpful to have some sense of how you're bringing yourself to meditation. This is actually a very important step. And 
So I want to talk a bit about this factor, this factor of wise effort. This is a new, we're actually entering a new section of the Eightfold Path, the last section. Uh, The last three factors of wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration are called the samadhi portion of the mind, where samadhi means a collected or gathered mind. And that's actually the last factor of wise concentration is sama samadhi. So effort is the first one, and it's the transition, therefore, between the, remember, the ethical conduct steps of the path of speech, action, and livelihood, and now this mental cultivation section of the path. Um, So we're making the transition from speaking, acting, and living well out in the world to actually cultivating wholesome mind states within our mind. What happens in practice, and you may have seen this, is that we do some work on our behavior and our speech during those sila steps of the path, conduct steps of the path, and then at some point we realize, oh, you know, the reason that I'm speaking in this way that I regret later is because I had gotten angry or frustrated um, or envious or whatever it was. And we start to realize, oh, there's something, there's a sort of a... Are you all right? Okay. You know, there's a deeper layer. Maybe it would work better if I were working a little closer to the source of where this behavior is coming from, which is, of course, the mind, the heart. And so effort um, is the practice of getting the mind into a good state, which then influences how the behavior and the speech are. It's also true that the, the order of the path is like this because the conduct steps of the path have an effect on how easy it is to sit. Have you noticed that some of sitting is about thinking about things that were done or said or will be said or something? Those tend to come up. And so the degree to which we feel okay about how our behavior has been, it's a lot easier to sit. It's just easier to be there. So... The word for this step is virya, that's the Pali or ancient Indian word, virya, and it's variously translated as energy or effort, depending how it's being used, it could be either one. Um, it can be wholesome or unwholesome. The fact that we're working on wise effort implies that there might be unwise effort also. And what makes the difference is the presence of wisdom. So we start to see connections to other parts of the path, wise view and wise intention. When they're there and informing the way we're making effort, then the effort is considered wholesome. And in particular, specifically, we're making effort in line with wanting to end suffering. And with an understanding of the, uh, the noble truths that say there is stress and suffering and struggle, and there's a way to end it. It's, it's a conditioned phenomenon that can come to an end by removing those conditions, changing them. Note that I said effort in line with wanting to end suffering. That's the wise effort. It's not about ending 
unpleasantness. It's not about ending a sense that myself has been attacked or uh, disrespected in some way. It's not anything about offending ourselves or about making everything pleasant, which is often how we make effort. So this is effort that's aimed at ending suffering. It's more subtle. It's a little different. And we'll talk about that much more so it's clearer. I just wanted to point that out. So essentially we're aiming at ending the difficulties in our mind that are bringing about the dukkha that we experience, the grasping and the poor seeing and the poor understanding that brings about dukkha or that accompanies dukkha. So essentially this step is about taking responsibility for our inner development. And if that sounds sort of heavy and you think, oh, taking responsibility, that's what I heard when I was in grade school or middle school or something, I would turn that to say that um, this is actually, it's the deepest kind of care that we can express to ourselves for wanting to end the difficulties in our heart and our mind, for wanting our mind not to generate the kind of mind states that bring suffering to ourselves and to others. To endeavor to free the heart is a very deep act of compassion. So I hope you'll hold this step of the path in the spirit of kindness and wisdom, which is really what it represents. So I'm emphasizing this for a reason, um, which is that as Westerners we tend to over-effort, and Eileen is going to talk a little bit more about the balance of that. So my uh, role in the rest of this talk is to talk about the four different components of wise effort that are talked about in the classical teachings. It's, you know, what is wise effort, and the Buddha lists four things. And I find that... um, Whenever I try to think and talk about them, I get tangled up because it seems like they're all different aspects of the same thing, which they are. <laughs> so I'll try to separate them out when I'm talking. Uh, but I do actually find it useful to have this differentiation into four parts. I think it's nice to be very clear about what's being developed. Um, but don't get too tangled up yourself in worrying about exactly which one of the four you're doing because they overlap. So first, uh, I'll describe the four giving a very everyday uh, way of saying them, which I love, is that uh, there was a guy who was a river kayaker. And, you know, he uh, I've never done that, but I've watched them. You know, they're those guys that go solo down these rivers and they flip over. And <laughs> it looks really fun, but really hard. And he heard a talk on wise effort given by Gill up in Redwood City. And he said, oh... These are exactly the components of learning how to be a river kayaker. And the four rules for river kayaking are stay out of trouble. So if you see a whirlpool, don't go towards that. (laughs) Get out of trouble. So if you flip over or get turned around, right yourself and get going back down the river. Develop skills. So it's not that easy, but you learn how to balance and use the paddle correctly. And then practice and maintain those skills. You don't just learn once in your river kayaking class and then you're done. You have to go out and do it and keep practicing. So these are the four components of wise effort, it turns out. They're just stated in different language in the texts. So the first, 
now using the language that the Buddha used, was preventing unwholesome mind states that have not yet arisen. And you can understand that, right? That's basically stay out of trouble. So if you, at this moment, do not have anger, sadness, envy, conceit, fear in your mind, try acting in ways that, at least acting in ways that they're not going to be, that you know will excite those. Stay out of trouble. And this is interesting in that we're asked then to notice what isn't in our minds. How many times do we appreciate during the day, wow, I'm not stark raving mad at this moment. (laughs) That would be really unpleasant if I were, but I'm not. Cool. (laughs) It can be a little bright moment of the day. Um, Because we aren't aren't actually assaulted by difficult mind states 24-7. We couldn't live that way. So we're not, and noticing the times when we're not is helpful. But preventing, so preventing means having some awareness about how they come about in us. And specifically, this step often refers to what are called the five hindrances. So I won't talk about them in great detail because you'll hear about them probably in the concentration step. But they're um, sensual desire and ill will, so wanting and not wanting. Restlessness and worry and sloth and torpor, so imbalances of energy, too much energy and agitation, or too much dullness and drowsiness. And then the fifth is doubt. Those are kind of broad categories of ways that our mind gets uh, off balance, essentially. And so we want to prevent the mind from moving into those kinds of states. Bhikkhu Bodhi has a nice quote about this from this month's chapter. He says, the effort to hold the hindrances in check is imperative both at the start of meditative training and throughout the course of its development. So don't worry, this will go on for a while. For when the hindrances arise, they disperse attention and darken the quality of awareness to the detriment of calm and clarity. The hindrances do not come from outside the mind, but from within. They appear through the activation of certain tendencies constantly lying dormant in the deep recesses of the mental continuum, awaiting the opportunity to surface. So he uses somewhat eloquent and complex language, but it's there's a couple interesting things there. One is that he says the hindrances don't come from outside the mind, but from within. And this is a, a statement about how the mind works, so you're not asked to just believe this. You're asked to check it out in your own mind and see if that's the case. But it's a very important point that we continually learn at kind of deeper and deeper levels because um, we tend to believe that the really the reason that we're irritated came from something being done. Like I was just irritated right before this session because I found that the copier had been unplugged um, back there when this piece was pushed back because I guess the plug <coughs> must be right behind there. So they unplugged that in the lamp and pushed it back in order for the big day-long that we had yesterday, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to do when you're setting up a room for a day-long. But it was left unplugged, and I really wanted to copy a flyer. In fact, we copy flyers here quite frequently, and so I was somewhat irritated that this large piece that I can't move was left blocking the only plug in the back, so I had to move the copier out here. And I did have irritation come up. Um, So... 
this is how it is, you know, because in my mind, the seeds of being irritated, of aversion, are not totally uprooted. I have that potential for it to flare up in my mind when the conditions are correct and if I'm not paying attention. Now, I didn't, you know, manage to get so angry that I threw the copier on the floor, (laughs) you know, right? So there's a a range in how we respond to these things, but it was a little bit of suffering for me to have that come up. And so um, this points sort of the other important thing that Bhikkhu Bodhi said. He says that these are certain tendencies that lie dormant in the mind. And so until we're fully awakened, we have this potential for, if the conditions are right, for things to come up. So this is the first hint. This practice is so not about fixing the world. It's so not about fixing the conditions in your life and all the other people so that everything can be calm and peaceful because you still have those seeds lying dormant in the deep recesses of the mental continuum. <laughs> so I've seen this again and again, is that it's, you know, we really need to go down and look into our own hearts to find where those causes of suffering are. And that's where it's really going to be healed and ultimately let go of for the benefit of everyone. For the benefit of everyone. So basically this one is about vigilance. It's about watching for when those fires start to flare up and trying to do things so that they're not going to flare up more than they need to. The Dhammapada says it more dramatically than me. Um, Vigilance is the path to the deathless. Negligence is the path to death. The vigilant do not die. The negligent are as if already dead. So I don't think that's meant literally, but it's you can think about you know, what he's saying there. What is, you know, what is it like to, to consider and vigilance and negligence are mindfulness and non-mindfulness. So you know, what is it like to say that not being mindful is a form of killing or dying? Okay, I want to go through the other, the other forms of wise effort. Um, the second is abandoning which was like, get out of trouble in the river kayaking. So that means abandoning unwholesome mind states that have already arisen. So we don't catch everyone. <laughs> there it is. We've gotten irritated or afraid or envious or whatever it is. It's already there. And so then the job is to let them go, find some way that they don't get even bigger, that we're not feeding them even more, find some way, because as soon as they're there, we're suffering. Um, Whether or not we've had time to give that choice comment to the person who we think made us angry, uh, we suffer even before they do, (laughs) before they hear our smart remark. So this is the realm of lots and lots of Buddhist practices. A lot of them are about how to deal with the mind that's somewhat crazy, in case you hadn't noticed. Um, So I am definitely in favor of learning a variety of techniques to work with our mind, to get it out of trouble, basically. And there's lots and lots offered um, from Vihara practices, uh, various behavior modifications, reflective practices, um, ways of dealing with distracting thoughts to calm the mind. We won't have time to go through all of them. But there is one that uh, you will eventually go to again and again, which is mindfulness, Mm -hmm. actually. And it sounds so mundane, because what people really want is for their 
unwholesome, painful mind states to go away. <laughs> you know, people raise their hand and, and say, how do I work with fill-in-the-blank, anxiety, fear, anger, despair? And what they really mean under that is, how do I make it go away? <laughs> um, and it's, you know, of course, we, we do want to remove that kind of suffering that we're having. But to make an analogy that's often used for agitation in the mind, um, like a jar that has muddy water in it, and you shake it up, and so it's all cloudy. And you don't have the option of opening the jar and pumping the water to purify it. You, you can only keep the jar closed. How do you get the mud on the bottom? The only thing you can do is put it on the shelf and not disturb it anymore, right? And then it will settle. So we have this sense of, how can I make the anger go away? How can I get rid of the fear? But actually, one of the best tools is to be able to see it fully, let it have its life, it arose, I guarantee you it will pass away at some point. And so being able to watch that process, it's hard at first because we don't have the strength of mindfulness to stay with unpleasant mind states, unpleasant feelings in the body. And so we, we have other techniques, you know, we can do other things. Um, but one of the most powerful ways to abandon is by seeing. And at the deepest levels of mind, that's the only thing that works, actually. So even though we try many techniques, I would say develop strength of awareness as the primary one, along with along with other ones. Okay, so then there's definitely it's fun to learn that we have some ability to manage unwholesome mind states. We can see them, we can learn the patterns of how they come, and so we can try not to make them come and so forth. So that gets kind of empowering. We start realizing, oh, I'm not stuck with all this stuff all the time. But it's even more fun to do the next two steps of effort, which are about wholesome mind states. So the third one is cultivating wholesome mind states that have not yet arisen. In other words, develop skills. So we're not actually stuck with the level of peace, happiness, calmness, joy, and concentration that we have, they can be developed, they can be enhanced. And it's really um, motivating and creating confidence to start seeing that we can uh, work with and create some of the conditions for those beautiful mind states to come about. There's a lot of joy in being able to see that. And we don't have 100% control any more than we do over the unwholesome ones going away. But we can influence the mind in that way. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. Because there's, there's lots and lots of wholesome mind states. And so he says, Though the wholesome mind states to be developed can be grouped in various ways, serenity and insight, the four foundations of mindfulness, the eight factors of the path, etc., the Buddha lays special stress on a set called the seven factors of enlightenment. Those sound good, huh? And they are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. You don't have to write all those down because you'll read them in the Bhikkhu Bodhi. Um, but I just want to highlight that those seven factors, the first one is mindfulness. And mindfulness was the main technique in the previous <coughs> of effort of abandoning. Um, so we're already cultivating, even as we're abandoning. This is why I get confused about what we're doing. If you're cultivating mindfulness in order to be able to abandon, you know, not get sucked into fear, you're both abandoning and cultivating at the same time. Or if you're doing metta because it's good for ill will, 
you're cultivating metta, you're getting a bonus, you're not just uh, helping yourself prevent ill will. So it's great. These all interconnect, they all support each other. The magic of mindfulness is that when you mindfully observe an unwholesome mind state, it decreases its strength. It withers like a, yeah, it just withers like a plant. But when you observe with mindfulness a wholesome mind state, it strengthens and it beautifies and it grows. It's like, it's a really good deal, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't know how that works, but the universe is built that way. So mindfulness is always our friend, even if we're looking at something that's... I, I kept saying, I keep saying unwholesome, let me just call out and say that I don't mind that word, but some people don't like that. It sounds sort of Pollyanna-ish, so you can always use skillful or unskillful. So if you keep looking at mind states that are unskillful, don't worry, it means they're going away. And if you keep looking at ones that are skillful, you're not being egotistical, they're growing. Be happy. So, it's great. And then we get to the fourth one, which is maintaining wholesome mind states that have already arisen. Right? So, practice and maintain skills. So this is also called guarding. So when you've got something good going, it's okay to make some effort to keep it going. To say, yeah, this is working. I've got the mindfulness, the tranquility, the generosity, the metta. And what I like about this step and the way it's called out is that what we often do with this, we say we hear that maintaining is good. And so as soon as we get a, a we realize we have a good mind state, is we try to grab onto it and say, I got it. <laughs> but you can't get a mind state any more than you can grab a river that's flowing by. It just doesn't work. And so um, we learn that we have to have a light touch. You know, it's like grabbing a, a delicate flower or chick or something, you know, don't squeeze it too hard. Uh, If you want to maintain it, it's a more subtle process of sort of maintaining the conditions that keep it going. This is particularly, a a particular example where this often happens is in developing some concentration in meditation. You've been practicing for weeks or months or even years, and finally you have that fantastic meditation where you sit down, the body is totally at ease, the mind just opens, the heart is clear, there's no distracting thoughts, and it lasts, and then after about a minute you go, concentration, I got it, wow, I finally got it, and then you say, wait a minute, (laughs) that didn't work, you know, that excitement about it has already changed it. (laughs) So um, we learn to be a little bit more subtle about when concentration arises in the mind, about how can we let that be there, um, but not try to you know, So I love this practice because it teaches us subtlety in working with our mind and also some humility in that we begin to realize it's not quite us doing it. If it were just us doing it, we'd just create all the wholesome mind states and get rid of all the unwholesome <laughs> ones, right? Why, why haven't you done that yet? Because it's not totally under our control. And so we, we start to have that sense of um, the, the more subtlety, the more give and take of how we get this mind aligned slowly over time. So it's a good training also in not-self, essentially. Okay, so I want to wind up. um, Like I said, don't worry too much about exactly which of the four you're on because they tend to overlap and they tend to go together. 
But the trick is basically to stay balanced, and that's more what we'll explore in the second half, and not to lose sight of the goal, which is the uh, which is to end end suffering. So I'll end with um, a statement that was an enigmatic statement from the Buddha uh, about this very process. He's talking about crossing over the flood, which is a a way of saying crossing over all the unwholesome mind states to become free. And he says, I crossed over the flood without pushing forward and without staying in place. When I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. And so I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. Mm. That is pretty much what right effort is about to me. Okay, so I think we could we have time for a couple of questions if anything has come up, but then we'll do one of the breakout groups so you guys will get a chance to talk about this also. But is there anything immediately on your mind? As you know, we have several opportunities throughout this afternoon to ask questions. Yeah, yeah, more of a comment, since you <coughs> yeah. agree with this. It seems like I've had a whole lifetime conditioning my mind, and it's going to take a whole lifetime to uncondition it. Yeah, uh, so well, one, one thing that often happens is mindfulness is that the first thing we see, and I'll invite Eileen to comment if she has anything to add, the first thing we see is how wild our mind is and all the stuff that's there. And Sometimes people start mindfulness practice and say, whoa, I'm sorry, I didn't want to know all of that. Um, <laughs> But what I would say is that this sort of dual action of mindfulness where it's suppressing things that are unwholesome and elevating things that are wholesome at the same time means that you're getting a lot more bang for your buck, if you will, with the mindfulness. My experience is that um, having that single factor in our mind more often accelerates uh, this process and it's not going to take you necessarily the whole lifetime. But even... I mean, who knows, but any amount is good, right? Yeah. Do you want to add anything? I think the only thing I wanted to add is that um, when you start feeling the benefits and really lift up what the benefits are, that just being on the practice is enough. Yeah. And um, that it's worth it. Yeah, it's just enough. Nicely said. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, Jan. Um, staying with <clears throat> certain unpleasant states feels doable in the daytime. Okay. But in the middle of the night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have, yeah, I know that. The mind is a different state then. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I seem unable to stay with it, but it doesn't go away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then that's the time to bring in other methods besides just seeing them with the mindfulness. So things like self-compassion, um, uh-huh. metta, yeah. um, gentleness in the mind. Yeah. So really feeling, oh, you know, this is challenging. And, you know, I don't know exactly what, I don't want to be too specific since I don't know yes. what it is, but these heart practices mm-hmm. really help us... Um, have that extra softness that helps us maybe be with these things. Mm-hmm. Does that help a little bit? Yes, very yeah. much. 
Yeah. Yeah, let's just going to add one quick comment. I mentioned this to Barbara when we were talking. I had a kind of aha in reading that um, the cultivating and, and maintaining positive states has really been a huge, huge help for me, and I'm just so grateful, like, why the practice of awakening joy has been so rich for me. Mm. Because it's kind of like, with that reserve in place, those middle-of-the-night experiences still happen, but they don't have the same kind of mm. to them, because the tank has this other stuff in it. Yeah, too. that's a nice so way to say it. So it felt really valuable to me when nothing bad is going on to put effort into cultivating and growing the capacity for positive states. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, to make sure, especially in our somewhat negative-minded Western culture, mm-hmm. we can not remember to emphasize the cultivation of joy, of happiness, of calm mm-hmm. in moments of relative peace in our life. It's, as Leslie says, it's worth putting that in the tank. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, why don't, let's see, how many people do we have? One, two, three, four, why don't we try groups of three? I think that should work. Why don't you get in the groups first, and then I'll read the questions, and you can choose any folks that are nearby or that you want to talk with. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay, so the first question is... Describe an area of practice where you have made some conscious effort and what was the wholesome intention behind this? You can do this from memory, kind of connecting. Was there some wholesome reason that I was making effort in that way? So that's, um, each of you will have a few minutes to talk about that and then there will be some chance to share at the end. So if each of you could talk, um, you know, without cross-talk. Yes, describe an area of practice where you've made some conscious effort. So probably at least some of you have sat and tried to follow your breath in meditation. (laughs) That could be one, for example. Or an area of maybe that we just had on the ethical conduct steps. Did you work on wise speech? Something like that. Some conscious effort. And what was the wholesome intention that was behind this? Because that's what makes it wise effort. So um, you guys can choose who starts as long as you choose within 10 seconds of the bell. <laughs> That's not... Okay, and I'll, I'll ring the bell between each person. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.